It is my great joy to minister the Word of God to you this morning in the text that we will be looking at today is in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. So may I encourage you to turn to that portion of Scripture. The Christmas season is a wonderful time of year when people around the world are somewhat forced to reckon with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say forced because many people do not want to even think about that. And though we don't really know the exact date when Jesus was born, and though much of this celebration of Christmas is rooted in paganism, and traditions that are not at all honoring to the Lord. Nevertheless, I am persuaded that any occasion that we have to focus on Christ and to tell his story is one that we should take advantage of completely. And so I relish this time of year. Sadly, as you know, Christmas has become so commercialized and so politicized that the profound significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and all that that means has virtually been swept away and discarded on the trash heap of religious extremism. It's amazing when you think about it, even here in our country, we now have lawmakers who believe that homosexual parades that flaunt homosexuality, bestiality, transvestism, drag queens, sadomasochism, even public orgies, that those types of things should be protected by the Constitution. And yet, a nativity scene that would in any way reflect upon the incarnation of Christ should be considered illegal. That's where our country has come. But this should not surprise us, for we are told in numerous passages of Scripture that things are going to get worse and worse before the Lord returns. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the last days difficult times will come. Difficult meaning savage, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Frankly, dear friends, if God does not judge America for her immorality, he will owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. But he will indeed judge all of the wicked of the world. And we even see his judgment upon our country now in the days in which we live. But unfortunately, <clears throat> the metastasizing corruption of sin can easily rob us of our joy even at this time of the year. 
In life, we often shake our heads in dismay at the wickedness of man and the vile effects of sin upon the earth. And seldom do we have an opportunity to behold something that is so exceedingly grand and glorious, so utterly ineffable, so transcendent, that we are forced to somehow stand back in silence, in speechless awe. But today we are going to do just that. Because today, in the text that we have before us, we are going to marvel at a phrase that the Spirit of God has given us in His Word. Because here today we are going to look at something that is so transcendent, so sacred, so filled with celestial awe and praise that it will force us right down on the ground on our face before a holy God. For today we're going to look at the concept of Emmanuel, God with us. Let me read this text to you here in Matthew chapter 1. And I want to begin in verse, actually I think I'll begin in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, referring to Mary, desired to put her away secretly. And obviously the context here is she is with child and he had not been with her sexually and he did not know what else to do but to divorce her. And in verse 20, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Beloved, this morning we have a very formidable task before us because we are going to endeavor to comprehend the incomprehensible. I invite you to join with me in viewing a holy and grand mountain of divine love and condescension. And we are going to gaze at this from several different vantage points in order to fully appreciate at least some of the things that God would allow us to grasp given our finite spiritual vision. And if you've ever been around a literal mountain, if you get back and look at it, you will know very quickly that there's no way that you can view all of it, that you have to go to various angles to somehow assess uh, 
its heights. And even at that, it's impossible to look at all of the cracks and crevices of its splendor. And how much more so when we try to examine the infinite heights of the purposes of God in the incarnation of Christ. And as I reflect upon this, I'm reminded that God has said in Deuteronomy 29:29 that the secret things belong to the Lord. And indeed they do. But he goes on to say that the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law, referring to the scriptures. So in my discourse to you this morning in the feebleness of human language, further constrained by time, we will endeavor to view this Everest of truth from various vantage points. And we want to focus exclusively this morning on that little phrase in verse 23, Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Even in the original language, there is a ring to the phrase, Emmanuel, Methumon, Hathias. And yet within those four words, in that little phrase, we find a concept that absolutely baffled the angels and continues to baffle all those that know and love the Lord God of the Bible. Emmanuel is not a proper name, but it is a title, or you might say a description. And it was first given to God's covenant people in Judah through Isaiah the prophet some 650 years before what we are reading here in Matthew. And the concept there was to reiterate to God's people that indeed God will make good on all of his covenant promises and that he would even come and dwell with them. And of course, that was not a message well received by many of the people of that day. In fact, Isaiah the prophet, who served the Lord so faithfully, was eventually sawn in two with a wooden saw. But I want you to remember that all through the Old Testament, the tabernacle and later the temple were a tangible visual symbols of the presence of God. In fact, the word tabernacle, mishkan, in the original language, comes from the word shakan that literally means to abide or to dwell or to rest. And from that comes that word shekinah. And you will know that the shekinah was a term used to describe the brilliant, dazzling light of the presence of God that hovered between the cherubim over the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. And this dazzling light in the Bible was literally the effulgence of the glory of God revealing the very presence of God. And you will recall that it was seen a number of times throughout Scripture, especially as the light that emanated from the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, it was that Shekinah that came and 
enveloped the shepherds on the hillside in Bethlehem, the glory of God that shone round about them. And it was also the austere, meaning the star, which led the Persian kingmakers, the Magi, to the place of Jesus' birth. Well, why? Why the tabernacle? Why the temple? Why the Shekinah? Dear friends, the answer is simply this, because the incarnate Christ was the Shekinah, the light of the world, the true tabernacle of God that came to dwell among men and give us all an intimate, personal, relational understanding of the lover of our souls and to save us from our sins. Now, to better understand this amazing reality Emmanuel, God with us. We are going to look at basically five different truths that I hope will help us understand a little bit of what God would have us to know. First of all, we must look at, number one, the marvel of his humiliation. The marvel of his humiliation. Now, none of us can imagine what it would be like to be God. That is an exercise in absolute futility. But we do know what it is like to be human. We know what it's like to be frail, to be sinful, to be helpless, to frankly be utterly dependent upon God for everything. Now, imagine as a human... Loving earthworms so much that you decided you wanted to become one. That you wanted to somehow live as one and even offer your life for them. Now, how many of us would be willing to make such an exchange? A rather ridiculous illustration, I know. But, dear friends, I would submit to you that the chasm between God and man is infinitely greater than that of man to worm. Moreover, I cannot envision the glorious habitation from which God descended. Imagine the dwelling place of God for just a moment. Picture the beautiful galaxies that we can see a little bit in our current finite human condition. In fact, if you ever have a chance, you need to look on the Internet and see some of the pictures from the Hubble telescope of some of the galaxies that they are now able to see, some of the stellar formations. It is absolutely Incredible. In fact, it is so incredible that it baffles astrophysicists. The images of of those places, the lights and the colors are beyond my ability to describe to you. And if you've ever seen them, and I hope that you will do this, when you look at them, you will say, I have never seen anything like that. There is nothing on earth to which I can compare what I'm looking at. And friends, I bring that to your mind because somehow this is just a a little glimpse of the outskirts of the third heaven where our Lord abides. Imagine his throne, 
Imagine his throne room. Imagine the cherubim that hover around him to do his bidding. Imagine the heavenly hosts. Obviously, we cannot. We have no ability to conceive of such a thing. I think of Isaiah, who was brought into the presence of God in the vision. And you will recall that when he saw the ineffable glory of God's holiness, he said, woe is me, I'm just disintegrating. You will recall even with Isaiah, when he was there, he was so overwhelmed with with what he saw that he felt as though not only he was disintegrating and he was going to die, but he felt as though there was no hope for him. And yet God in his mercy loved him. And as we think of where God abides, we can think even of Ezekiel. You will remember that he said that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And you will recall that even there it caused him to fall on his face in fear and in reverence before a holy God. An amazing thing. And then he gave that description in Ezekiel. And when you read it, you almost have to laugh. Because you can tell he, he is, he's scrambling to find words, even as I am this morning. He, he is trying to somehow wrap words around something that is incomprehensible to him. Something beyond his ability to fathom. And even the Apostle Paul, you will recall that he was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise. And the text says that he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. What he saw and what he heard was something that was forbidden for him to even share, assuming he even could do so. Yet, dear friends, it was from the magnificent, holy grandeur of this heavenly abode that the Lord Jesus Christ descended to this earth. The self-existent creator who sustains all things with the word of his power came to tabernacle among sinful man. An amazing thought. He set aside his unimaginable majesty to come and to dwell with us, to be tempted by sin, to, to weep. And to hunger and to thirst and to experience the full range of human emotions. To experience physical pain and to suffer and to ache and to bleed and to even die. Now I ask you, what manner of love is this that would motivate God to stoop so low? We read in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 6 that although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, he surrendered his divine prerogatives. He set them aside, even though nothing of his divine essence changed. And can you imagine that solemn day when the Son of God took off His royal robes, 
when he took off the jewels of his majesty and he set them aside on his throne. Can you imagine somehow the sad confusion even of the angels who are witnessing this and now descending with him to the earth as he goes into even the virgin's womb? And yet they were able to announce to her in Luke 1:32 that we read earlier that he will be great he will be called the son of the most high the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end and as they marveled at his mysterious humiliation those angels that had been with him Can you imagine the excitement that they must have experienced when they stood before those terrified shepherds and the angel was able to speak to them as the Shekinah glory of God enveloped those shepherds and he was able to say, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And then later for those same angels as the text tells us to come together as a heavenly host, the multitude of them and to and to cry out saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. For in such loving humiliation boggles the mind. And then to think He could have taken upon himself the nature of a mighty angel. He could have become like Gabriel or Michael, but even that would be an humiliation beyond description. But he took upon himself the nature of a man. An amazing thought to me. a creature that he himself fashioned out of the dust of the ground i mean this is a condescension that begs language and notwithstanding the fact that he became a man worse yet he chose to become an infant not a mighty warrior even though he was the lord of hosts he came as a carpenter's son not as a prince who would be king though he were the king of kings he chose to be born in obscurity not in the lofty realm of nobility when you think about it he came to be born in a stable not in a palace and he laid in a manger not in some royal crib and he came to be nursed by a teenage mother and to be fathered by a young jewish man both of which had no social standing no notoriety child of god what solace we can find here in his humiliation because here we see the infinite love of god revealed in a tangible form that we can all identify with when according to John 1:14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father 
full of grace and truth. Now I want you to ask yourself, think how limited your understanding of God would be had Jesus not come in the flesh. You will recall that in the Old Testament it was made very clear that no man could see the face of God and live, but not so in Jesus. Because suddenly the triune God, because of the incarnation of Christ, can be seen in a different light. Suddenly the distinctives of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit come to light. And indeed, we must all remember that all three are equally engaged in the work of our salvation. And suddenly, in the God-man Jesus, the character of God is manifested to us in a medium that we can understand. Not that words are obscure to us, that we couldn't understand descriptions of Him in His Word, But now he takes on flesh and blood. You see, now we have a living, breathing illustration of the character of God. Now suddenly we can see a love that would ultimately secure our redemption. Albert Barnes summarized this so poignantly when he said, Till God in human flesh I see, my thought no comfort find. The holy, just, and sacred three are terror to my mind. But if Emmanuel's face appears, my hope, my joy begins. His grace removes my slavish fears. His blood removes my sins. So first we contemplate Emmanuel, God with us, by marveling at his humiliation. But secondly, I want you to gaze with me at the miracle of his incarnation. And here again, we try to comprehend the incomprehensible. The angel of the Lord made it clear to Joseph in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Matthew that the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, here is a miracle of miracles. Now, I want you to think about this, dear friends. Suddenly, the creator and the sustainer and the consummator of all things is reduced to a microscopic organism and placed inside the womb, actually places himself inside the womb of a teenage virgin and unites himself with her egg. And at that moment, the divine nature was united to the human. The property of both natures being absolutely perfectly preserved. Theologians have summarized the incarnation in this way, and I quote, Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In other words, he remained fully God, and yet he became fully human. And beloved, in Christ, we witness humanity and deity preserved in an indivisible oneness. In fact, in Colossians 2.9, we read, For in Him, referring to Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, one might ask, why was this necessary? Well, the answer is this. Jesus had to take upon Himself the nature of a man in order to be punished for our sin. 
Yet he also had to be God in order to endure the sufferings for all of the elect. So the work of redemption demanded what is called a theanthropon, a God-man. It demanded one who could supernaturally fuse the human nature with the divine to form this indissoluble bond. We know from Scripture in Matthew 5, 2, that Jesus was the offspring of David according to the flesh, yet as God, he was a ruler whose goings forth are from eternity. You see, dear friends, he had to be a man in order to suffer a punishment that only God could, could, could endure, thus requiring both. Think of it this way. He had to be a man to bear the punishment for us all, but only God could drink it to the dregs. A perfect man had to die, but only God is holy. Human flesh had to go to the grave, yet only God can overcome it. So both the human and divine natures had to be supernaturally woven together. This is the miracle of the incarnation. Back in the 1600s, that great Genevan reformer Francis Turretin describes that the incarnation this way, and I quote, Both natures should be associated that in both conjoined. Both the highest weakness of humanity might exert itself for suffering and the highest power and majesty of the divinity might exert itself for the victory. End quote. Now, beloved, I ask you this morning, how could Christ be our mediator unless he could somehow bridge that infinite chasm between God and man. And how could Christ be our king, lest he become united with us as man? Yet only as God can he reign in our hearts and have dominion over our souls for eternity. Yet only as God could he return again someday, as promised, and renovate the earth and ultimately fulfill his covenant promises to Israel, reigning for a thousand years as king of kings. You see, the Holy Spirit had to produce such a union. And beloved, the babe in the manger had to be born of a virgin in order for him to be both the son of man as well as the son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. As son, he was the son of a virgin, according to the flesh, but Emmanuel, God with us, according to the spirit. But how sad to think that at this time of year, the vast majority of people, even in our so-called Christian country, know nothing of the eternal truths that I've just shared with you. So as we gaze upon the mountain of this truth, Emmanuel, God with us, we see the marvel of his humiliation, the mystery of his incarnation. But thirdly, we see the ministry of his association. Now, let me explain this to you. Again, in Matthew 1:23, we read the phrase God with us. The word with is a preposition that 
denotes close fellowship. It's the idea of together with or a sharing, an intimate relationship. And we read about this incredible union in various places in Scripture. For example, when Jesus was praying in John 17, he spoke of this amazing union that we have as believers with him. He says, and the glory which thou hast given me, I give, I have given to them that they may be one just as we, capital W, are one, the, tri- the triune Godhead. I in them and thou in me that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. What an amazing bond. What an amazing association. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, we read, The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, beloved, I want you to understand that because of our union in Christ, we have a supernatural union that is literally authored by God. John 14.23 would tell us that. Also, we have a living union by which Christ, Christ's life literally becomes our life, as we read, for example, in Galatians 2.20. We have an indissoluble union that can never be severed, according to Romans 8.38 and 39. And we also have a mysterious union, meaning that there is no analogy in human experience that we can compare it to. In fact, in Colossians 1.27, it's described as the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And indeed, he is with us forevermore as Emmanuel, God with us. The bottom line, what I want you to understand, beloved, is that our union with Christ is the very basis of our salvation and all of the blessings that we receive in him. In fact, we are reminded of this, aren't we, when we come before the Lord at his table, when we break the bread and we pour the wine. Now, for just a moment, I want you to consider just some of the blessings that we have here because of the ministry of his association, because he came to be with us. And beloved, when we consider this, when we consider the incarnation of Christ, when we see his life lived out here on earth, we can see our own life. Because think of it, like us, he was born. He was born into a family. He was raised by parents. He experienced all of the types of things that we would enjoy and sometimes endure as children and as teenagers and as young adults. He worked with his father to earn a living. He experienced both the good and the bad of society, the good and the bad of family and friends. And as I think about it, what a comfort it is to know that my Savior and my God traveled down the same kinds of paths that I travel and that you travel. Speaking of the incarnate Christ, the writer of Hebrews encourages us, saying in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, again, think about this. How could Christ be our faithful high priest that could sympathize with all of our infirmities unless, first of all, he was both God and man? And then apply this to your life for a moment. I ask you this morning, are you battling with temptation? Jesus was no stranger to that. It followed him wherever he went, especially in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil himself. I ask you this morning, are you besieged by poverty? The Lord knew it well. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. I ask you, are you struggling with rejection? Well, the Son of Man was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Are you plagued by persecution? Jesus' own people screamed in rage for Him to be crucified. He knew it well. This morning I would ask you, are, are you overwhelmed with loneliness? Maybe with fear. Jesus also knew that very well. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he wept and he even sweat drops of blood. Are you facing the darkness of death? Jesus did his whole life. And then he died on a cross. He entered the grave and he conquered it. In his resurrection, my friend, my point is simply this. There is absolutely no place on this earth that you can travel in your life that Jesus has not already been. That's the point. And therein we find great comfort in the ministry of his association. And I want you to understand, dear friends, that he was not only with us back then. Nor is he with us now and then, but he is with us forevermore. He is with us all the time. In fact, he said in Matthew 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But there is yet a fourth observation point on this mountain of truth. As we think about Emmanuel, God with us. And here I would invite you to look at, fourthly, the majesty of his glorification. Yes, indeed, he came as the incarnate Christ. He lived out his life. He died an ignominious death upon a cross. But he is still with us as the resurrected, glorified Christ. You see, he has now ascended to the right hand of the Father. Scripture is very clear about that where he mediates as our advocate, as our faithful high priest. But also we know that he is the head of his body, this glorious organism called the church. He is still with us. He is the, also the coming universal king who will reign on the throne of David during the millennial kingdom, fulfilling again his promises his covenant promises to Israel. And someday, this same Jesus who was with us as the babe, who is still with us 
reigning in glory, will judge all mankind, including believers. He will even judge the living inhabitants of the earth at his glorious return, which could be very, very soon, any time, as well as the unbelieving dead at the great white throne judgment. Beloved, this is the very one who was born in Bethlehem. Emmanuel, God with us. I want you to be careful not to think of him today in your life as he was back then. Even though I understand at Christmas we reflect upon his birth and all that that means. But I want you to understand again and be comforted with this, that he no longer exists in a state of humiliation, but in a state of glorification. In Philippians 2.9 we read, For this reason also, and that's reflecting back upon his humiliation, his emptying of himself. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, beloved, this is the message that we must proclaim to a lost and a dying world. You're not going to hear this on CNN. You're not going to hear this in your little cutesy television Christmas movies. You're not going to hear this from the leaders of our country. Indeed, it is absolute foolishness to them. So we must proclaim it. Well, as we've contemplated God coming to be with us, we've seen the marvel of his humiliation, the miracle of his incarnation, the ministry of his association, the majesty of his glorification. And finally, number five, I would have you look with me at the mercy of his invitation. Dear friend, how can you possibly refuse to come to God when he came to be with you. How can you do that? Read it again. Emmanuel, God with us. Now please understand, today we have not seen him as the unapproachable God of Sinai, where the mountains shook and the darkness enveloped it and the people were terrified. We have not seen him today as the terrifying fire even in the burning bush with Moses. We have not seen him as an avenging God filled with wrath. We have not seen him today as the one seated upon the great white throne where the text says that at whose presence all earth and heaven flee away. We haven't seen him in that way. But today we've seen him as the infant babe in a manger. Now I ask you, what more could he have done to express his love for you? To come in such a way, to live and to die for you. What greater expression of tender mercy could possibly exist that would soften your heart to somehow come before him and bow before him as Savior and as Lord? To even ponder such a thing is blasphemous to think that somehow... We would not do that. Well, some might say, you know, 
I'm not fit to come into his presence. My life is so filled with sin. Well, I ask you, dear friend, do you not see the poor, the sinful, yea, even the smelly shepherds kneeling before him? I think someday when the time is right, I may just decide to accept this Jesus. Ah, dear friend, be careful with that. Pray that He has chosen you. It is He who decides, not you. Pray that He will have mercy on you, but don't delay. Can you not see the shepherds hearing the good news and running? Did not the shepherds say in Luke 2, 15, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And the text says, and they came in haste. The idea is that they ran as fast as they could. They ran in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And yet I can hear someone else saying, well, quite frankly, I am too important, too scholarly, too renowned, of a person to involve myself with worshiping this Jesus that so many of you acclaim. And I would ask you, if that is you, do you not see the Persian kingmakers coming from the east, the Magi? Do you not see them coming to worship the king? Do you not see them kneeling before him and bringing him gifts? Do you not see the angelic host hovering around the manger of the incarnate Christ? Do you not hear them praising Him? Is your pride so strong that you will not bow the knee to the babe in the manger? Because if indeed it is that strong, I will assure you that someday you will bow but not before a babe in a manger, but before a holy, righteous God of judgment. Is your heart so hard that you would refuse to confess Him as your Savior and come to Him in repentant faith? And what of you, believer? Most of you know the Lord and you love the Lord. And I had to ask myself this question, and I leave this as a challenge to each of you. If God in His infinite love would come to be with us, will we not forsake all to be with Him? To serve Him, to honor Him, to worship Him, and to love Him. I hope that indeed it will be so. And certainly this time of year is a time when we can not only reflect upon what God has done in the glorious gift of the incarnate Christ, but also reflect upon our response to it. May God have mercy on our souls and be glorified in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, these eternal truths shake us to the very core of our being. 
when we reflect upon them, we find ourselves shuddering with a reverent fear and yet rejoicing with a joy inexpressible. Lord, I pray that you will take these truths and apply them to each of our hearts, regardless of the condition for those who are still in the bondage of their sin, refusing to bow before the Savior. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will convict them and that today will be the day of their salvation. And then, Lord, for those of us who know you, may we rededicate our lives to serving you, rejoicing in the incredible condescension of your love when you came to be with us, to live that perfect life and to die in our place. How we long to see you now in your glorification. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.